0: Welcome back to a new episode of Pas listeners. This is a really exciting and milestone episode for us because we have integrated a new host. Jessica and I have brought on Michael Mahaney, who will be co-hosting with us going forward. Super exciting. You'll quote-unquote meet Michael soon as we dive into the interview. And today our guest is Tiffany Mills, who has a show coming up next week. Tiffany Mills is choreographer and artistic director of the New York City-based Tiffany Mills Company, which she founded in 2000. Recent New York City seasons include the Flea Theater Resident Artist 2018, La Mama Moves Dance Festival 2016, and BAM Kennedy Center's Professional Development Program, which culminated in a New York City season of BAM Fisher in 2013. Mills holds an annual summer intensive in New York City, starting in 2006, and has taught at Trisha Brown Studios, Dance New Amsterdam, Gibney Dance Center, Perry Dance, The Playground, ACDA, as well as at universities and festivals nationally and internationally. Some recent awards and residencies include NYU's Tisch Summer Dance Festival, CUNY Dance Initiative, the Joyce Theater's Mellon Anchor Tenant Program, Baryshnikov Arts Center, and LMCC Swing Space, among others. Tiffany Mills Company returns to the Flea Theater this November 13th to 16th, coming right up with the world premiere of Not Then, Not Yet, an evening-length work that explores states of transition and transformation. Not Then, Not Yet was created in collaboration with Puerto Rican composer Angelica Negron and French vocalist-composer Muriel Louveau. It examines states of transition, drawing inspiration from the liminal space between endings and new beginnings. Weaving movement and electronic score and live vocals, the artists map internal landscapes as well as external ones as they consider the often surreal space one dwells in between past, future, young, old, and even life, death. Chairs are used as objects of comfort, support, options, and obstacles. In addition to Mills, Negrin, and Louvaux, Not Then, Not Yet features dramaturgy by Mills' longtime collaborator Kay Cummings, lighting design by Chris Hudax, and costumes by Pei-Chi Su. We can't wait to dive in and learn more. Thank you for being here, Tiffany, and welcome. Thank you. Tiffany, we always start from the beginning, since this is a dance podcast, and just ask how you got into dance, what your history is with dance, and how you developed your choreographic style and
1: career. Terrific. Well, I'll start at the beginning and do a brief synopsis. I I started creative movement dance classes when I was very young, when I was four. I was growing up at the time in Eugene, Oregon and have a mother who is a visual artist, a painter, and my father at the time was the director of the International Center at the University of Oregon, doing a lot of travel and setting up a lot of exchange programs. So I was exposed to both art and culture at a very young age, and growing up in a time where there was a lot of freedom of expression in the 70s and 80s and a lot of openness to trying new things, it really fed who I am and, and my interest to be an artist and a creator. I then continued throughout my youth in the kind of typical studio dance classes of, of jazz and tap and, and ballet, particularly going towards tap. I love the rhythm and I feel like that still influences me today. One of the dancers in the studio the other day said, "Hey, Tiffany, you know, I, I, I still, I still sense like that rhythm that keeps coming out of you from your early, early studies in in tap dancing. Anyway, through my experience in college, I started to be exposed to modern dance, contemporary dance, what that is, what that could mean, and that continued my journey. Prior, I had studied a lot of gymnastics." which feeds my love to go upside down and inversions and partnering, which I do a lot of today. And today still, I am also a downhill skier and a swimmer. So I love the athletics and growing up. wasn't enough dance wasn't enough. So growing up with an older brother who also was very much in love with athletics, I think that all of those things and the rush and momentum that goes in all of those sports fed my my kind of passion and aesthetic today, which includes a lot of, of those elements of weight and momentum and speed. And like I mentioned, the sort of gymnastics fed the upside down and the Love to be disoriented, actually, by not knowing what's up and down and front and back. (laughs) So um, all of those things fed who I am and what I'm interested in. And then I majored in dance at the University of Oregon as an undergraduate at the Honors College there, and then went on to Ohio State University to receive my MFA in choreography. And then I moved to New York. So that's my quick pathway. (laughs)
0: And out of curiosity, something I always love to ask, how did you actually from there manage to build a career as a choreographer? Because that is not an easy thing to do, you know, to actually make that happen. Yeah,
1: sustainability and, and making it happen. Well, you know, in my younger years, I didn't really understand how dance could be a career. So when I started my undergraduate life at the University of Oregon. I was a journalism major because I also love writing and that's actually helped me a lot as a choreographer, writing tons of grants and everything else that goes with sort of the marketing of a company. But I learned through the dance department and starting to study contemporary dance and modern dance that there are options for a career as a teacher, as a choreographer, that there are many pathways as, you know, a historian or a dance scientist. So I started to understand that there was actually career pathways possible as a dance notator, etc. And so that's when I switched from being a journalism major to being a dance major because it was my passion to move, but I didn't understand how I could put that together in like a longer trajectory for my life. I knew I needed to go to graduate school to continue to have exposure and more experience because being on the West Coast, I didn't have as much exposure to all of the companies that are you know based here in New York and certainly there's companies around the country too, but I, I I felt like I needed more I needed more before I came to New York. So I kind of did the opposite pathway of a lot of people, which is to get a degree or not, but to come and do a professional life and then and then go back to get a master's degree. But I flipped it because I wanted more training and exposure. So when I was doing my MFA, I was 10 years younger at least than most of the people that were re- returning professionals in the field going back to get a degree. So I flipped that and then and then moved to New York. Uh, I don't know if I fully answered your
0: question though. <laughs> Tell me the rest of your question. Oh, I guess just putting the pieces together like, so you moved to New York and then how do you become a choreographer? Yes, how do you make it work yes, for yes. all of our listeners who are like, how do I do this?
1: <laughs> exactly. So when I came to New York I visited first because I thought it would be very healthy to kind of see what I was getting into. And um, my best friend from childhood was going to, getting her Ph.D. in music at University of Columbia. So I literally slept on her floor under her kitchen table. And, <laughs> and then I, I started to take class and explore what was, what was here trying to get my own place and I couldn't because I couldn't I didn't have a job so I couldn't get a bank account and didn't have a bank account so I couldn't pay the you know pay for any of the bills or anything I mean it's one of those that we I think understand that it took a while and and then I for a while I moved to New Jersey with some family friends and then I moved to Fort Green in Brooklyn and lived with two actors who allowed me to stay in their in their basement area but so, how to make the dance part of it happen? Part of it is how do you make the live living part happen, right? Oh,
0: they're so intertwined. Sadly. They're so yeah. they are. So anyway,
1: so I finally found stability in my living situation, and I I was taking dance and really inspired by Trisha Brown and her studio that she had at the time, and so I really became interested and focused in that sort of philosophy of um, movement. And then I was on scholarship at Trisha Brown. And then I, a few years later, was asked to teach there. So that was started to be a really foundation for me as an artist. I worked just to pay bills. I worked arts administration jobs. And my earlier journalism came into play there. It really helped tremendously. And I think, and I tell a lot of dancers when they ask about how to make it, I say, have another skill set besides being a dancer that can really support whether it's that you're, you know, certified in yoga or Pilates or that you teach kids or arts administration or whatever it is. But I I did the arts administration to help me pay the bills, and then I kept taking classes and teaching and showing my work right away in in smaller venues. Five years later, I incorporated as the Tiffany Mills Company, which gave me a foundation for growth that I was having artistically, but I didn't have sort of behind the scenes and the infrastructure that I needed. Mm. And that gave me a board and board of directors and a five oh one C three so then I could start applying for grants, not under an umbrella organization, but under my own organization. And it started to really put me in the mindset of how to fundraise and how to support a company so that I can pay dancers and that I can hire collaborators and pay for studio space and all those things that have to happen to make a career. So I think smaller steps to bigger steps in terms of like living and then finding, you know, a job that would help support and then finding a structure that works, a model that works for helping to grow a company.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Very interesting for, I'm sure, many people, you know, starting out trying to make it work. Michael, I'll let you...
2: Thank you, by the way, for welcoming to the podcast. This is Michael Mahaney? So, question for you, as a as a performer and a journalist, you know I, I appreciate so much what you were saying, but you mentioned your inspiration from from Trisha Brown specifically, and you also mentioned all these other aspects of your life that were so informative to your dance career, the skiing, tap dancing, gymnastics, so. Trisha being an inspiration to your dance careers, you know, modern, contemporary. Who else inspired you as a dancer? Definitely from the dance world, but also, interestingly enough, from the gymnastics world, or from the t- from tap, or from the '70s freedom movement that you talked about. Who else inspired you?
1: Well, I think I have inspiration from dance, and then I also have inspiration from the greater, the greater world. I feel like in in the tap world, I started out very early on studying in a studio from Tim and Nicola Foster, and they came from more of an influence of a, a Broadway background. So so the initial tap that I, I experienced was very inspiring and exciting and electric and high heel tap shoes and a different kind. It really affects so much, the whole form depending on what shoes you're wearing. When I went to college, I continued with tap as as a huge inspiration and started exploring sort of what hoofing is and a lower tap shoe. And Janet Discutner was my teacher at that time, whose sister had been a Rockette, and then she had studied at Ohio State, and it's the reason why I ended up going there as a graduate student because she recommended that as a really strong program. So that influence of starting to get lower into your body with the flatter shoe and to drop your weight, huge influence and what then, you know, this sort of connection to Trisha Brown is all about dropping your weight and using your breath and letting letting the floor influence you and your movement. So I feel like that progression from being like in a in a more sort of Broadway tap realm to being more in a lower place and dropping the pelvis and the weight and feeling the rhythm and feeling the ground and feeling the breath and then going, sort of taking the shoes off altogether and going into modern dance, but finding finding um, weight and momentum and gravity through space and through breath, which Trisha Brown really brought in, was a really important progression for me into my body in a different kind of way. So I feel like those are huge, huge influences. In terms of just other like artistic dance influences, Pina Bausch has always been somebody that greatly inspires me. She's very different and approaches you know, dance very differently Theatrically, And I feel like over my career, which is now in 19 years with the company, I've become more and more, in, because I founded it in 2000, I've become more and more interested in how we can allow different mediums to influence each other and dance and theater being a huge sort of interest of mine at, at this point in my life and why I now work with a dramaturg, Kay Cummings, and I've worked with other dramaturgs as well, because I'm now really interested in the journey. You know, I've talked about the body and getting into the body in a different way, but now I'm also interested in this journey emotionally and psychologically through the arc of a piece, through characters or personas within a piece, through individual differences, which is really my passion today. So the company of six dancers all come from a really different place in this piece and other pieces that I've done in the, in the last several works that I've created. But how how to have these six dancers be a microcosm for a larger community, so different backgrounds in every way from movement to personal, that is really exciting to me today to explore. How then bringing those characters together in, in a work and different perspectives create chaos and order and conflict and resolve and all those things. So I think I'm I'm thinking about work a lot more theatrically now in terms of arc, in terms of content, in terms of journey, in terms of character, not trying to tell a literal story ever. I'd like to keep it abstract, but I do feel like, and we talk a lot, like, like, yesterday in rehearsal, we were talking about, okay, where does this person start in, 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 in the piece and where do they end? Where is their arc? Where is their high points? Where is their low points? Where is their turning points? All these kinds of things that I think are more perhaps theatrical influenced questions. And that really excites me. And then I I can also go off and talk about other, other collaborators in other mediums because I think along with the theatrical, then I start thinking more about the visual. So I've worked with filmmakers not for this project but I've worked with visual designers I worked with poets and, and different so just bringing in different mediums to continue to grow what we're creating and the form and influence choices
2: yeah that's awesome that's that's it. so I, I love that the expansion of your company is has been so focused on bringing in other artistic forms to expand and inform that's that's amazing
0: and so many different influences. I love that shoes are like basically an influence so you can like chart part of that through the shoes. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah, really yeah, yeah. fun. <laughs> this is such a random question, but just really quickly, what's hoofing? I'm curious. <laughs> you guys know. Oh, what's hoofing? Well,
1: I don't know if I'm the best person to explain that and maybe the the term has new meaning as as the form evolves because I have not I have not been in tap or hoofing for quite a while, I would say since Ohio State. I have my tap shoes, but I haven't, they haven't been on my feet. Um, (laughs) But I think that hoofing um, is really combining a musicality, almost like a drummer. And it's it's involving a lot of, like I talked about, weight and dropping of weight. It's uh, involving a ton of improvisation. And I'll make another link here, too, with tap dancing, and especially as an undergraduate and graduate, when I started exploring sort of this hoofing world, there's a lot of learning a base idea and then riffing off of it, mm. doing round robins. So If you're in a group of people, one person, there's like a base idea. And then you, you do the base idea with whether it's, you know, a flat ball change, but then you create beyond that your own rhythms and you improvise spontaneously. And so, so this idea of improvisation or having a motif or an idea movement-wise or sound-wise, sonically, and then improvising on it is what we do every day when we warm up here in the studio. But now we're not doing it with tap shoes, but we are we're improvising. So every day in rehearsal, we warm up for 30 minutes before we start dancing, but it's an improvisation. So we'll do improvisational scores. Sometimes it's a solo. Sometimes it's a simultaneous solo or a duet. Sometimes we do our version of round robin, which is standing in a circle. And then each person gets to be in the middle and pick something that they want to work on Mm non-verbally. They do it movement-wise and then we support them either literally through weight and support and lifting and all of that or through rhythm or through space. So we still do a form of round robin, which is something that harks way back to like my tap dancing. But it's, it's a different version and it's our version. But I think that my passion for improvisation and for coming up with material in the moment, you know, spawns from that earlier time.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for explaining. We have a little bit of background noise. Listeners, we are at Mark Morris. So bear with us. Tiffany, tell us more about Not Then, Not Yet, your work that is coming right up next week. And uh, introduce us to Mary Shelley, whose writings uh, we understand influenced your creative process.
1: Definitely. So Not Then, Not Yet is a project that we've been creating for about two years, maybe a little bit more. In the studio, we started working on it uh, about a year and a half ago, but we started working on the ideas and the concept prior to even getting into the studio. And the early sort of genesis of ideas was between myself, Muriel, Louvaux, and Angelica Negron. And we talked about an interest in exploring liminality, this idea of being in between, um, in between states or places or chapters of our lives. There's a lot of ways to interpret that in-betweenness. And Mary Shelley came into our discussion early on as an influence because her life and writings are based or one thread, I should say, is this idea of liminality. And I can speak specifically. So in her seminal work, Frankenstein, that she published in 1818, she was interested in the creature in her story being in a very liminal space created and not quite being other and not quite being human. So kind of being in between, not being fully accepted by society but not being completely separate from society and then also playing with sort of the creation of life. And then eventually at the end, the deconstruction of that life into death. So there's a lot of sort of in-betweens that, that she was exploring in that work as well. Her life, her personal life at the time, which I always think is really interesting to look at what the artist is experiencing at the time of creation, because I think there's so much influence but her life was she was experiencing a ton of liminality so when she was creating the idea for the story it was uh, a summer without sun there was an explosion in indonesia an eruption that was causing there to be no light literally so she was in this summer of darkness
0: oh my gosh
1: yes and then she had just experienced uh the loss of a child so she had birthed a child that that Died, and she'd experienced earlier in her life the loss of her mother, and so there was a lot of, of of life and death, and sort of in between, you know, the pregnancy and thinking that things were going as they should, and then and then the 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 child being born and being alive for a very very short time, and then passing away. So anyway, we were interested in sort of these these places of of, of liminality, and she was also having a lot of sleepless nights and, and having visions when she woke up in the middle of the night before she came up with the idea for her, her novel Frankenstein. And so she was, I think she was just experiencing both like in the physical realm with the storms and, and then in her personal storms inside of, of her. And also she, she married Percy Shelley very, very young and she left her father. And so there's just a lot of, of, of sort of shifting instability within her personal life. So, we talked about all of that as as a starting point. This piece not not then not yet is not a retelling of Mary Shelley or her life, but I do think it's really important to give context to initial ideas. And then we in the studio started talking about our own personal experiences with liminality and when that happened for people and why and then we started improvising based on our sort of personal Those personal states and places, both in terms of the sound and in terms of the the movement. So so we had sort of in our bucket of ideas sort of this seminal inspiration from Shelley. But then we also had our own lives from that point a year and a half ago until now. It has grown much more into our own lives and our own experiences. But I think it really set the tone and the mood and some initial ideas with which we then
2: sprung. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <Cool. laughs> um, that's that's so I- inspiring, and and this sort of jumps ahead a little bit in our in the questions that we talked about. But motif wise, so much of what you're discussing is this conceptual idea. So taking that and applying it physically onto people, talk a little bit about how you go about doing that. How you you take this idea of in-between, liminality, and explore that physically on stage with people?
1: I think different dancers it, uh, chose different pathways in their improvisation. And we, as I mentioned before, we do a lot of improvisation. Mm-hmm. So um, when, when w- once we'd had that d- initial discussion, we then started, we had some music that Angelica and Muriel had, generated as ideas and the dancers hadn't heard it. So I just, I asked a dancer to go and respond to their own thoughts conceptually and the music that I put forward, you know, we just put on that they had created that they had had never heard before. And I let the dancers basically let come out what, what would from that discussion and from their own bodies. And then I started to pick and choose. We did many, many improvisations. And then I, I, picked and chose those that I thought had a spark of an interest. So for, I'll just give examples then, sort of like how that translates to movement. So for instance, one of the dancers, Nick Owens, he chose to be on a very specific pathway on a diagonal. And there's an exploration for him about being in between standing and on the ground. And so this in-between, literally spatially about, and there's a lot of, he was exploring a lot of tripping and falling constriction. So like he was in a very tight hallway or in a very tight space, but trying to get somewhere. And then also this trajectory from being standing to being down. So the in-betweenness of that was very interesting to me, both physically and emotionally. And so I took that and said, let's keep going with that. That's really, that's really interesting. I'm just going to give a couple examples for the sake of this. Then another woman, Emily Pope, she was exploring this idea between reaching out to somebody and trying to have touch. So it's like no touch to touch and this space kind of between that, like touch to no touch. And she also has a specific pathway from up to down. I was very interested in, in like the space in, in these explorations as well, but, but for her, she was trying to, trying to reach either touch or see or get noticed by Muriel who was singing. And so it's that sort of liminal space between being recognized and seen and not being recognized and not being seen. So being visible or invisible or having a responder or somebody respond to you or not. And so that was very interesting to me, that interplay between those two worlds and the in-betweenness of that. Mm -hmm. So we took that and that became a whole solo that we evolved. And after we created these, or they created, you know, and then I helped shape these sections, we also started then talking about what those might mean what that might mean in terms of the constriction and up to down, or for her, the touch to not touch or seen to not seen, or, or started to add in different experiences that we might have had of those to help inform that material. Mm. One more example, Kenneth Olguin, he created a solo on a chair or an improvisation on a chair, and I feel like he was playing in between masculine and feminine. Mm. And how it's not binary anyway, but like how the the interplay between in gesture, a lot of gesture between those on that spectrum, mm-hmm. on that spectrum, and so yet another example of sort of these this in between or liminal or when you're when you're being pushed and pulled along, yeah, along these pathways.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, and thank you for describing your process a little bit too. We always ask about process and how your works come together. Is that a pretty typical process for you with the work, to work in that improvisational way, kind of giving your dancers a conversation or having a conversation or giving them a prompt and then seeing what they come up with and going from there? Is it something you do often?
1: Yes. So we are, we are big on improvisation from tasks. I think the tasks, and that's what always is really interesting to me, what tasks solicit interesting ideas. So the task you know the task of something liminal and then what you do with that was enough of a prompt to go in a lot of different directions we i would say very very early on in my career i came up with a lot more ideas in my head to come and try out whether it's like here's a phrase here's a physical idea and now I'm much more interested in, here's this task, how can you solve it? Oh, this is not actually soliciting something interesting, but here's another task. Oh, this is, let's go with that. And so it it means that the generation of initial ideas are coming. I mean, I'm bringing them in, then the dancers are responding to them, and then I'm saying, oh, this is this is great, let's go with this, let's shape it, shape it more. And what, what that creates for me is a lot of the material that we're creating is about relationship, even if it's a solo relationship to something, rather than movement and then trying to figure out what movement means. Mm -hmm. The movement comes from the exploration and the experience.
0: Interesting. And I'm just, if we uh, kind of reverse for a second, I'm curious, you mentioned that you and your collaborators had conversations after you sort of talked about Mary Shelley, about liminality in your own lives and how you maybe had experienced that If you're comfortable sharing, I'm so curious what might have come up in that discussion or how you might experience this concept in your own life today.
1: For sure. I'll speak about, I remember what I said, and I remember some of the comments that others said. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the places that I was experiencing liminality or I I thought of that popped into my mind is in childbirth. I have have two children, and just prior to giving birth with both children— I had this strange phenomenon where I, I stopped hearing. I stopped having like sound come into my world. So I, I was in the process of pushing and trying to get the baby out and the doctor was talking to me and my husband was talking to me and all, all the people that were there to help support. And it's, it just like sound left my world. And I think when you have more pain and I think when you're going through something very, very intense, your body focuses on what it needs to focus and maybe turns off the things that it doesn't need at the moment. But it was very surreal to me how sound just kind of left my, my world. And then oh. after giving birth, then it like all came back. But it's like I went into this very, like very focused place to get my job done. But in the process of that, like other senses just went away. Very surreal. It It was no, it wasn't. It was. It was. I. I because I was closing my eyes. I did not want sight. I I couldn't take it in. It was like too much information, and I and the sound just went away. So it's like no sight and no sound. So for me, that was a very liminal sort of in between place of being present, but present in a different way, and and having some senses not being present, so others could focus, and I could focus on the physical. I could focus on the breath, and I could focus on, yes. Yes. It felt needed. So, so interesting. In terms of other people's responses, I remember one of the other responses in that circle of discussion was feeling liminality when you're in an airplane because you're not, yeah, 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 yeah. Like you're not quite on the ground and you're not experiencing something in the in your life as you know it and you're also changing depending upon the length of the flight you're changing time zones and sometimes you're going against the clock or with the clock and so this very feeling of being liminal like not physically being grounded but then not uh, I mean you're you're present but it, it's it's a different kind of presence and it's a different time of time space, continuum in a way. (laughs) So, so somebody talked about sort of that, that feeling of being liminal when you're in an airplane and you're going between places, but you're not quite present in the world as we know it. And I think it's also too with now, like everybody having, you know, phones and devices that you also are often separated from all of that, which is now such like a umbilical cord in a sense. So like, I don't know, there's just a liminal feeling of that. I remember another response was in natural disaster when you don't know, especially I remember Angelica talking about sort of her family in Puerto Rico and when there's natural disaster and not knowing if, if everybody is okay and not being able to communicate with them, there's a sense of liminality of sort of like holding your breath and waiting to know where people are and if they're, if they're okay, if they're safe. So this feeling of liminality when there's extreme, concern and unknown about about those that are closest to you. So those were some of the things that, that came up in that discussion about feeling liminal. I think some... I don't know if somebody said this, but I know we've talked about it before in terms of between sleep and wake, and it might have been somebody's response, but, but when you're in that place where you're not quite conscious, but you're not totally asleep... Wow. Yeah, yeah, and how that that's very strange because usually in that as you slip into sleep or you slip out of sleep, you still are having some of your dream, but then some of the real world is coming into your awareness as well, whether that's an alarm clock or a cat walking over your head or whatever, whatever it is. So I think that that's also a very liminal kind of in-between place. It's really interesting. The more we talked about it, the more places we found and understood that it's part of our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I, when you mentioned phones and like being on a plane and not being able to be tied to that, the Wi-Fi and everything coming into your life, I actually thought, I, I mean, I wonder if our phones and especially social media, kind of put us into a a liminal space, if you will, all the time now. It's sort of, it's sort of fake interaction. It's real interaction, but you're separated from the person. And I just also think just the way behavioral patterns have evolved as a result of texting, usually in bad ways, can kind of force a feeling of liminality. Um, So it's just interesting to me that you mentioned, that you mentioned that being part of, kind of the opposite, like feeling liminal in a plane where you don't have your device.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with you. Devices bring up a lot of issues around our presence or who we're communicating with and what's more important. Is it more important the person that you're sitting next to and having a coffee with or the person that you're texting with that's however many miles away? And it's a different piece, but Blue Room, the piece that we premiered last year at the Flea. That was the one of the main ideas of the whole piece was, um, yeah, our mobile devices and headphones and and how it brings us in and out of connection and communication and with whom and when and why.
0: Yes, it really does. And actually, I had just spoken to another guest, Catherine, whose interview I think will come out after yours, ironically, who we were talking about how dance really brings you back into that physical presence and space and you're forced to be present with the people in the space around you. So there's, there's something there too, some kind of connection where, I mean, thank God for dance that we're still doing this, where we leave that, that remote world behind for a minute or for however long and really like engage with what's in front of us.
1: I think it's really important. That's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about dance is because it does, it does ask us to be, ask us to be present. And I'm interested also in the audience being as present as possible to think about things, to feel things. To go away thinking about things as as active responders rather than sort of passive viewers.
2: You, uh, first of all, as a person who I feel like airplanes are 100% a hundred percent a liminal space for me too. I feel like they mark transitions and chapters in lives for for me personally. It it this conversation when we were you know researching this this idea of liminal space was this very conceptual idea to me that. I found fascinating, but wasn't really sure if I completely understood. But having your, your, what you were just talking about, your discussion with your collaborators about how there are so many different versions of experiencing liminality throughout life that happen all the time and how it's so relative to everyone else. Of course, it's an a, amazing inspiration for a piece. And this idea of focusing on the in-between also sort of seems to put a focus on the present being very focused on being in the present, right? Not past, not future, but where else could you be? Speaking of your collaborators, I would love for you to, to just discuss a little bit about Angelica's music and Muriel's vocal contributions to the piece. I know we have to wrap up soon, so I wanna, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about how they have collaborated with this piece as well.
1: So in terms of Angelica and Muriel, they each have contributed greatly to this process. Angelica has created an electronic score. And why I was drawn to her as an artist and interested to work with her is because I love that she combines classical instrumentation with found sounds and is, is really interested in different kinds of radical juxtaposition of soundscape and score. And so that was sort of an initial inspiration. And for Muriel Louveau, I am very interested in how voice and movement, it all comes from the body. And so how we could really bring those together and live the live element element of music is so magical as a as a performer to have that in this space. And her her range and her neoclassical influences I thought would be another really interesting juxtaposition against Angelica's world, mm-hmm. and and our own. So so that was the the initial inspiration. And you'd like me to talk a little bit more about sort of the process of of sure. and Muriel, music. Also,
2: Muriel singing live, yes, yeah. yeah. yes,
1: Muriel Muriel singing live in the show, which is very exciting, and um, she's Paris based and just arrived. So we're also very much looking forward to having that live element which changes everything from from recorded music to live in terms of in terms of the process a little bit about that we started with some music that they and I talked about that they had generated from our initial early discussions and then we responded to that music and we made some initial improvisations like I talked about that we then culled and, and pulled out some that we wanted to go further with. From that point, I then went back to Muriel and Helica and said, okay, this is interesting. I'd like to draw this out more or this is what's interesting music and dance-wise. Can we go further with this? Mm-hmm. So that what, what I think is so wonderful about collaboration when it works like this is that there's a back and forth. Mm-hmm. so it's not like a mu- music is made and then the dancers and the choreographer figure out how to how to make it work with that but that they, but there's literally a live looping discussion that informs the work and so on. And then the, the the pieces and the sections that were really interesting, for instance, if there was a section and we we, we wanted to do a response to that section or add on to that section, we, we started to also talk about like how sections could inform other sections. So not only lengthening musical ideas as the dance ebbs and flows, but also how we might have, want to have responses to those sections became a really interesting discussion. So like in May Yamanaka's solo, it's called Storm. And I felt like it's a very important and similar part or turning point in the work. And, and so we decided we wanted to elongate that. For Jordan Morley, he had brought in this idea and interest in a metronome for early on in the piece. And then we really liked it as, as a, a place of waiting. And so then we asked Angelica if she could do a response to a metronome, but but evolve it and capitalize on sort of a deconstructing and reconstructing of a simple metronome. As Because we started talking a lot about time with liminality and how when we are starting to feel liminal and different, how we can really p- stretch and pull time. So those kinds of conversations influence the work as well. So I thought that in this process, we've had dancer influences, we've had the the... Composer influences and my own influences, and then people being able to take that and continue to evolve, like version two and three and four of the of the music and the dance. Mm-hmm.
0: That sounds like a really exciting process uh, with these collaborators. Yeah, very yeah. collaborative, and and a long process as. As it always is. Yes, to birth a work.
1: <laughs> yes, and then and then Kay Cummings as the dramaturg also being influential in that mm, process. Right. Just to speak to that as well, as the pieces like we started creating these different pieces that we we are interested in, then starting to to put them together and figure out what the larger arc is, and that's when she's really come into play in terms of aha, uh-huh. you know, we're starting, we're starting in, in this place, but we're ending up in that place. And how, how are we getting there? And what more information do we need from different characters to make that arc as understood as possible? So she's coming in with that sort of conceptual, like we were talking about, and both theater and dance background she brings to, to make that possible.
0: Uh, well, thank you so much for everything you've shared. This is truly fascinating. To wrap things up, maybe just let us know what's on the horizon for your company in 2020 uh, or beyond. For sure.
1: So I'm right now, my head is like totally in next week. And, <laughs> oh, and, that's fair. And, and the premiere. But in 2020, well, we always are involved with APAP, which is the presenters conference in January. And we are anchor partners at the Flea Theater. So we are invited with three two or three other companies to do an APAP showcase there. And then we will, uh, there'll be some touring and residencies that happen in colleges and universities. I'm going to Roger Williams university and setting a piece on students there. And that's a big part of who we are too, is going out and creating work, showing work and teaching. And then we will be at NYU Tisch school of the arts, their summer dance festival, 2020 in June which is six companies that come over six weeks and each company has a week and we teach tish students and we perform work and we create work on them so that will be that will be exciting this is our second time doing that and then we also do our annual summer intensive which is the first week in June and that's typically at Mark Morse, and it is a week of improvisation and partnering classes so that we can integrate with a community and teach and do what we love, basically. Yeah, yeah, but share it with, like, a wider wider audience. As well, just in terms of on the horizon, I teach in the guest artist program at Gibney, so I, I can also be found there teaching classes. And, and then we have touring coming up as well in, you know, later in 2020 on the West Coast. We'll be doing a tour out there, so...
2: And if listeners are interested in finding out where they can see performances or find out more, do you have any social handles, websites that you want to plug real yes, quick? Yes, for
1: sure. So we have our website, www.tiffanymillscompany.org. And then you can find us also on Facebook under Tiffany Mills and Tiffany Mills Company and Instagram and Twitter. So all of those are great ways to stay in touch with us and what we do. And, and next time we'll see you live. <laughs>
0: Definitely. And thank you again. This has been great. Thank you.
2: Thank you.